This is Linux Reality, Episode 2, Free Software. Hello, welcome back. This is your host, Chess Griffin. I'm uh, sure to appreciate you stopping by and checking out this podcast. I'd like to thank those of you that sent along some feedback and uh, posted some comments at the website. I sure do appreciate that. I really got some, some nice emails from folks, very encouraging and very positive, and uh, um, makes me very excited about uh, continuing this this uh, podcast. And and I know that the audio isn't perfect, uh, but uh, you know I've got some plans uh, to work on that, and uh, so hopefully that will improve over the next couple of episodes. I'm also still kind of tinkering with the uh, with sort of the um, the layout of the show, if you will. Uh, these first uh, few episodes are going to be sort of introductory. I've, I've got this one and a couple of more um, planned to sort of lay a foundation that I think is important for future episodes. But I do have some some ideas of some things I want to do to you know kind of tweak the. Uh, um, sort of tweak the format, and I got some. I got a couple of really good suggestions from folks on some things to do that I'm definitely going to be implementing. I'll tell you more about those in the future. You know, when the time comes, so to sort of uh, revamp the format a little bit after these uh, introductory uh, episodes. So, stay tuned uh, for those changes. And but again, I wanted to thank you all very much for sending along that feedback. In the first episode, we discussed uh, Linux and its origins. We uh, defined the terms Linux and uh, operating system. We also sort of talked about the background and philosophy of Linux. And in this episode, I'd kind of like to drill down on on some of that just a little bit, uh, specifically about some of the philosophies involved here. And what I'm, I'm talking about is the idea of free and open source software. You may recall in the uh, first episode that I discussed uh, the GNU project uh, as a group uh, started by a gentleman by the name of Richard Stallman, and um, and uh, you know free so- free and open source software um, is something I don't know if it was necessarily invented by these by these folks, but it certainly has been advanced by them. Um, and uh, but what we're talking about when we talk about free and open source software is the idea of of freedom from restriction. Uh, free. It, in free software does not have to do with cost. And I'll probably uh, be repeating this many times, not just in this episode, but kind of throughout this whole series. But uh, uh, because a lot of times Linux folks tend to get up, you know, get hung up on that and, and they and they get upset when they see a, a Linux company charging for software and they say, well, you know, it's supposed to be free. They can't charge for that. When uh, in reality, cost has nothing to do with it. Free software means software that's uh, provided without restriction. Let me read a definition here that's provided on the uh, homepage for the GNU project. Free software is a matter of liberty, not price. To understand the concept, you should think of free as a free speech, not as a free beer. Free software is a matter of the user's freedom to run, copy, distribute, study, change, and improve the software. More precisely, it refers to four kinds of freedom for the users of the software. The first one is the freedom to run the program for any purpose. Second, the freedom to study how the program works and adapt it to your needs. Access to the source code is a precondition for this. Number three, the freedom to redistribute copies so you can help your neighbor. And number four, the freedom to improve the program and release your improvements to the public so that the whole community benefits. 
access to the source code is a precondition for this. A program is free software if users have all of these freedoms. Thus, you should be free to redistribute copies either with or without modifications, either gratis or charging a fee for distribution to anyone, anywhere. Being free to do these things means, among other things, that you do not have to ask or pay for permission. So the idea of free software really is important, and it's, and it's one of, of freedom from restrictions. It has nothing to do with cost. It's the idea that the, uh, the program is available to anyone to use for any reason and to make any changes that they want. It really is free, free as in completely open. Now, the idea of open source software is maybe just a little limiting, a little bit more limiting than the idea of free software. Um, open source software does mean that the source code is provided for free and, uh, you know, it is open. But it could, not always, and it doesn't have to, but it may, I think, um, open source software may have some restrictions from time to time. For example, some projects may say, if you make any modifications, you have to contribute the source code back. And if you notice from that definition I just read about free software, that's not required in free software. Or perhaps other open source projects may say, here's the source code, you can do with it whatever you want, um, but if you sell it, you must maintain attribution or something like that. Uh, again, just some sort of little tweak or, or little limitation to the, to the license is going to make it from free. It's going to, it'll be just, you know, open source software. So, but in general, the Linux community, in, you know, describes these projects as free and open source software, sort of combines the terms, and you'll often see that designated as F slash OSS. That stands for free and open source software. Now, again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the GNU project were the ones that kind of came up with this idea of free software. And what's interesting is is what this has led to. Um, the GNU project, as I mentioned in the first episode, they had been trying to create their own open source distribution, open uh, their own open source operating system, and had all these tools put together, these sort of low-level libraries and compilers and all this kind of, you know, hardcore code that was used um, to, you know, to... You know, when you take those low-level um, components and you put it with a kernel and you kind of stitch it all together, that's what creates an operating system. So, in other words, they had they had uh, you know nine tenths of the of the stuff ready to go. It was the kernel that was that wasn't working for them. So, when other folks came along and took Linus's kernel uh, or the Linux kernel and and combined that with these project with these tools that the GNU folks had put together, the compilers and the low-level libraries. That's what created the basis for the modern-day Linux distribution. And because the modern-day Linux distribution contains a lot of these these pro these programs and stuff from the GNU folks, Richard Stallman and and everybody at the GNU project believes that Linux could be should be called GNU Linux. And uh, they would say, you know, you run GNU Linux, not just Linux. Um, they feel that adding the GNU in front of Linux um, sort of, sort of, you know, is sort of uh, acknowledges the debt that the Linux community owes to the GNU project for providing all of those other tools that were necessary to, to complete a Linux distribution. I can certainly understand where he's coming from, and I certainly acknowledge um, the things that the GNU folks have done, and that's why I mention them here in this podcast. I don't tend to say GNU Linux. I just feel like it's 
difficult to say and it's just you know but I, I, I do take every opportunity to acknowledge the canoe project and everything that they've done for Linux and uh, and so you know again I just wanted to bring that up just so people were aware because I do think it is very very important now one other interesting little tidbit about the GNU project um, and uh, this is just sort of sort of just interesting little little thing but uh, GNU the word GNU capital GNU um, that is what is called a recursive acronym and a recursive acronym is 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 um, an acronym you know of course an acronym is when you just have letters that stand for something like CIA stands for Central Intelligence Agency so a, a recursive acronym is one where the letters stand for different words just like CIA but the first letter the word that the first letter stands for is the acronym itself so in other words GNU is GNU's not UNIX and it's sort of a pun, you know, but uh, um, so that's where GNU comes in. That's GNU, and you'll see that from time to time in free and open source projects. There's a project we'll talk about later on called uh, WINE, W-I-N-E, and that's another recursive acronym, and that stands for WINE is not an emulator. So again, you can see that the first word in the acronym is the acronym itself. So anyway, I just thought I'd mention that as another interesting little tidbit. So um, the idea of free and open source software really cannot be overstated. It is it is critical. It is the foundation of of Linux. The idea that that software should be free, should be open, should be available, and should not be closed and proprietary and and copyrighted and licensed and that sort of thing. Now there are some licenses that apply to the open source community, and I'll talk about those in a few minutes, but. You know, I guess all this talk about open source and free software sort of begs the question, you know, so what? Who cares? And, you know, before I answer that, I I, I think this this problem is illustrated in, uh, in the following way. Um, you know, I've worked with a lot of folks, um, both in my family and friends and, and, and uh, people who've hired me to help them with things. And 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 sometimes, not of course not everybody, but sometimes I come across folks who view computers like toasters. That's sort of the way I describe it. In other words, they view a computer as merely a device or an appliance, you know, a thing that you use, like an iron or a television or a telephone. And they don't think of it as anything other than that. Now, in my mind, that is just not the right way to look at computers. Computers are so much more than toasters. I mean, a toaster just needs to toast your bread. So, yeah, I mean, who really cares? But a computer, I mean, a computer is our gateway to the world. It is just, it is the repository of all of our information, our personal information, our banking, our content, our audio, our video. It, it, it controls now our access to the news. I mean, more people get their news off the computer and off the Internet than newspapers these days, at least in the United States. And so, I mean, the computer is, is really critical. And when you've got a situation where only one company really provides the access to the computer, and what I'm talking about, of course, is Microsoft uh, and Windows, uh, that's a problem because I think, I think, you know, that's putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. So, but that I'm getting ahead of myself. But but basically, my point here was just that computers. Some people think of them as just mere appliances, but I think people have got to realize that computers are so much more than that. They're so much more important to that. They impact our lives in a way that toasters do not. So, you know, again, getting back to the question I asked a minute ago, what difference does all of this make? Who cares? Why do we care about free software? 
And, um, gosh, this is a question. I mean, we could take a whole episode on that one question, but, um, you know, to me, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I, I really boil it down to sort of three main reasons why it's important to take into account free and open source software or why free and open source software is relevant. And those three ideas or these, these three reasons for me, at least are the first one is historical. The second one is because free and open source software is more stable and more secure than proprietary software. And the third reason is that free and open source software um, prevents vendor lock-in. So as to the first reason, in my mind at least, why free and open source software is important, and that's the historical reasoning. And, and what I mean by this is, is um, you know, kind of going back to the old days or the early days of, of computers in the 50s and 60s and maybe the early 70s, um, you know, the early hackers... Uh, well, and well, and by hackers, of course, I mean coders and programmers. That's what hacker really means. Uh, the popular media seems to think that hacker means someone bad who breaks into the CIA's computers or something, but that's not what hacker means by itself. Hacker is just a coder, just a programmer, a, com a computer, a computer enthusiast. Um, you've got good hackers and bad hackers, but. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, the early hackers, they coded because they loved it. They just loved to code. And, I, well, I guess I'd say hackers today do the same thing. I mean, but, but you know, from the very beginning, um, software and coding and computers, it was all viewed as just some sort of organic communal experience. It was not viewed as something where you had to lock things down and tie it up and, and sell the rights and license things and that sort of thing. People, in other words, released the source code routinely, and the idea was because, I mean, everybody knew that programming was hard, and they figured, well, if you got the source code out there, then other eyeballs are looking at it, and the more the better, and you're going to find holes, and you're going to find problems, and, and um, let's all work on this together. It really was a communal type of thing, and, and so I think a lot of that is still present today in the free and open source community. I mean, I see, I look at community projects, community, you know, Linux projects, and I look at, I read mailing lists and look at forums, and I see what developers are doing, and it's really exciting. And, um, I mean, the excitement and the, and the real work that's going on these days, whether it's behind the scenes, you know, coding, or whether it's web development or web design, it is happening in the free and open source community. I mean, I know Microsoft's got a lot of great talent, a lot of great programmers, but the 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 real exciting cutting edge stuff is not happening at Microsoft. It's happening in the free and open source community because people people get people are excited about these projects. They can they can do things without being constrained by management and business plans and that sort of thing. And um, I mean, inevitably, you see features and things in the free and open source community first before you do in proprietary software. Mark my words, when Internet Explorer 7 comes out later this year, it's going to have all these features that most of the people are going to say, wow, these are so cool, I've never seen these before, but they're features that have been around in other browsers for years. And, and you know, there's nothing new in Internet Explorer 7, but... Anyway, so my first reason uh, as to why free and open source software is important is is sort of a historical uh, reasoning or that historical precedent, I should say. The second reason is that, you know, I think I sort of touched on this a second ago, but free and open source software is more stable and secure. Again, when you've got the code that's open and you've got a lot of, a lot of people looking at it, 
you've got a lot of opportunity to find and fix bugs. And inevitably, um, open source projects are fixed fast, much, much, much faster than what goes on it in Microsoft's, uh, you know, Patch Tuesday and all of that. Um, I mean, they, the, um, first of all, I just think that, 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 you know, uh, real showstopper, real serious vulnerability, vulnerabilities are far less common in free and open source software. Um, you know, most websites that you visit on the internet, most, most websites, most big, big websites run on some type of Unix, whether it's Unix itself or Linux or FreeBSD, which is another Unix-like operating system. And, and a lot of them run on Apache, which is an open source web server. And the reason why so many big players rely on Unix and other open source projects is because they know it's stable and secure. Um, but so, you know, some people might say, well, that's, you know, that's not good. You'd rather have um, a security by obscurity. But, but, that, but that model just does not work. And um, when you hear security experts talk about code and talk about vulnerabilities, most of the time, if not all the time, I mean, virtually all the time, they tend to say that, that open source projects are more stable and more secure because the code is open. I mean, more people can kick the tires and see if it works. Um, I mean, you've got a potential millions of people out there that can look at the code versus several thousand programmers at Microsoft. So, And the third reason why I think free and open source software is so valuable and so important to us is that it prevents vendor lock-in. And I see this at a personal level at work, and I've seen it in the past with you know Microsoft Office products. Uh, when you rely on one company to provide you with your operating system and your Office suite, let's say, um, you are really subject to the whims of that company. And, um, you know, the Microsoft Word doc format and the Microsoft Excel, you know, XLS spreadsheet format, those are proprietary document storage formats. And that can be a real problem in the future. Um, and that's just talking about documents. But, you know, the same principle applies uh, in so many ways to vendor lock-in. You know, again, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. And, and I had this come up recently with a friend of mine. He had a bunch of files that he had saved uh, on an old Macintosh in some obscure file format. I totally, I can't even remember what it was. And of course, they don't make this software anymore. And there's no, he couldn't find any software out there that would open these documents. And there's no converters and nothing because it's a closed proprietary document format. So he's stuck. I mean, he's, you know, he can't do anything about it. He's going to lose these documents. Whereas if it was the open document format, which is a new um, open source, or I should say an open document spec that's being proposed by a bunch of companies like IBM and Sun and HP and Novell, I think, um, their idea is to have an open document format that, that, is, that can be used by multiple vendors in multiple products and so the data is not locked up in the software. I mean, you can still have a proprietary office suite if you have to. And, um, you know, different companies are going to offer different features. So you can still have competing products in the marketplace. But, but the document storage has got to be open. I mean, people have got to be able to have full access to their data forever. And when you rely on a closed source program and a closed document storage format, you know, you are. You know, you could be setting yourself up for a problem later on down the road if that format's no longer available. So, 
And the same principle, again, can be applied to the operating system itself and to, um, you know, codecs, you know, which are the little little pieces of software that let you listen to certain types of audio, like MP3s, or watch certain kinds of video, like QuickTime. I mean, those are all proprietary. If you have all your content and all your stuff in QuickTime and MP3, well, let's hope that those codecs are around in a long time, because if not, um, you know, that's going to create a problem. So... Those are my three reasons why free and open source software is so critical and so important. Well, of course, another uh, question that all of this begs is, you know, how far do you get? How far do you take it? Do you just eliminate all proprietary software from your computer entirely, or do you allow some sort of mixture? Um, you know, folks like Richard Stallman uh, would believe in a completely clean system, absolutely no proprietary software whatsoever. I, on the other hand, feel that, you know, I've got to be a little more pragmatic and realistic about it, and I certainly can understand that there's going to be a need for proprietary software, you know, at certain times, and, and you know, and there's certain other times when it's just not, you know, there's not much you can do about it. Like, for example, I've got two young kids, and, you know, they love going to the Sesame Street website and the Playhouse Disney site, and, and you know, those sites use Flash, and, uh, you know, Flash is a plug-in uh, provided by Macromedia, which is now part of Adobe, but uh, it's a proprietary browser plugin that lets, you know, animation and things play on a, on a web page, and uh, so a lot of those games and stuff use Flash, and, uh, you know, without having Flash installed on your Linux computer, you wouldn't be able to use those sites. Uh, Java is another example. That's uh, a proprietary software by Sun, from Sun. Now, What's interesting, actually, about those two examples is that there are open-source versions of both Java and Flash. There's an open-source project called uh, Blackdown Java, which is an, an open-source Java. And then there's a newer project uh, called uh, GNU Flash, I believe it is. And they are a group trying to make an open-source version of Flash. So what's what's interesting about that is that it does sort of, sort of show that when there is a need for a proprietary piece of software that the open source community can you know can rally around that and folks can step up to the plate and start working on projects to make those uh, open source and so that's pretty cool that's pretty exciting so it does show you that it works and you know Richard Stallman would probably say see look you know you focus on the free software and uh, and eventually those those needs will be met by the free software community so I certainly applaud and, and admire and believe in the uh, free software principles, and that's why I'm talking about it during this episode. And I tried to abide by it as much as possible. But you know, again, I sort of realize that there are times when you know when you know pragmatism or realism has to you know take a place too. And you know, at least for me, that's not something you know I just can't get rid of all of it entirely. So I think ultimately it's up to the it's up to the uh, user and up to the consumer. Okay, well, now that we've kind of defined free and open source software and uh, sort of talked about the advantages and things like that, the last uh, thing I wanted to talk about in the second episode was some of the licenses that are available because you still have to license free and open source software just to let everybody know that that's what it is. Um, the GNU project, again, bring these folks back into the picture, they've created a bunch of different licenses. Uh, the most famous and the most common one is the GPL, or the GNU General Public License. And that license more or less puts into words and legalese sort of those four points I mentioned before about free software, about, you know, having the ability to redistribute and make modifications and access to the source code and all of that. That's what the GPL basically says. Um, 
Now, what's interesting about the GPL is the fact that it does say specifically in a couple of places that you can charge for the software. And it kind of goes back to what I said in the very beginning, that free software does not have anything to do with cost. People are welcome to charge for free software. You can charge for supporting it. You can charge for providing a warranty or just distributing it. You know, packaging it up and putting it on a CD and selling it in a box with a manual is perfectly fine. And that does not violate the GPL one bit. Now, the GPL has also you know, got some other licenses. They have what's called the LGPL or the, or the lesser GPL. Um, it actually used to be called the library GPL because it dealt with the libraries that I talked about a little while ago about the low-level libraries that the GNU project put together. But nowadays, that's called the lesser GPL. Um, they've also got a, uh, there's, they've got like a free document or like a, like a documentation type of a license, and they've got several others. And the GNU project's really good about, they've also got great resources about other licenses that they may not have created. Like, there's, there's a license that's called the BSD license, and there's some talk about that, and there's some Apple licenses, and there's different kinds of licenses out there, and the, and the GNU project can kind of pare it down into plain English and say which ones, you know, satisfy the free software requirements and which ones do not. And, uh, you know, some do and some don't. So I just wanted to point out those licenses. And, and while we're on this topic, one other point, not really related to free software, but it's just a great group that I like to mention from time to time, and that's the Creative Commons. Um, just like with uh, the GNU project in providing licenses for free and open source software, the Creative Commons is a group of folks that attempt to do somewhat the same thing for content. You know, the GPL and the, and those other licenses that the GNU project talks about are really for software, for, for something tangible. It's kind of hard to apply those licenses to content, whether it's, you know, artwork or written material like blogs or podcasts or, or what have you. So the Creative Commons has come up with, a, with several different licenses with different things that you can opt in or opt out of, like you can, you can allow commercial distribution or you can allow distribution without attribution or you or you can require that they provide attribution you know meaning that they refer back to the original creator um, you can restrict commercial use uh, there's all different things you can do and what's really neat about the creative commons is not only do they have the licenses themselves the legalese stuff but they also provide sort of plain english explanations if you go to the website of www.linuxreality.com in the right-hand column towards the bottom, you'll see a link uh, that says Creative Commons. You click on that little logo, and you'll see an example of the plain English license uh, that the Creative Commons has. Now, these are these licenses are relatively new. I don't think they've ever been tested in any sort of court. So they have certain licenses for certain jurisdictions, certain, you know, by nation. Um, they do not have a separate license for the U.S. They just have sort of a generic license. So... You know, I do think there is some question as to the validity of these licenses, but I'm sure that at some point in the very near future, these licenses are going to be tested in the courts, and and uh, so we'll get to see what the what the legal impact of these licenses really is. But I do applaud the efforts of this group to at least bring this issue up, uh, because none of the licenses that are out there are really good for blogs and podcasts and that sort of thing, and they do need to have something. Uh, if you know, otherwise, if you don't have any kind of license. Then once you create or what you put out there, it's just in the public domain. Anybody can do with it whatever they want. And that may be fine. That may be what you want. But there may be times when you want to make it clear that they cannot do certain things with it or, or what have you. 
And that's what I like about the GPL is it's not so much a restrictive license, but it's almost a proactive license. It tells you what you what your rights are, uh, that you can do this and you can modify it and you can do this and you can distribute it without cost and that sort of thing. So, well, that about wraps up this second episode of Linux Reality. Um, hope you enjoyed uh, this podcast and uh, and that you're enjoying this series. I think I'm working on some audio issues and hopefully that's improving. Uh, again, please send your comments and your feedback along to linuxreality at gmail.com. It can be email comments or, or audio feedback or whatever you want. You can also go to the website at www.linuxreality.com and uh, check out the check out the website and post comments to the episodes and get the feed and, and look at the FAQ and all that kind of stuff. So that's there for you as well. Also, if you like what you hear, sure would appreciate it if you went over to podcastalley.com and voted for us. Um, and uh, we've got a few other places that were listed as well, as well so I'll, I'll try to dig those out and, and maybe mention those on the next episode. But uh, please be sure to tell your friends and uh, about us. We're now listed in iTunes, so you can find us there, and, and it's easy to subscribe for people that use iTunes. And, uh, uh, again, just please send your feedback along. This podcast is for you, and I look forward to hearing from you and uh, you know what you like and what you don't like and what I can do to make it better. So please let me know. Uh, the opening music was written by Matthew Hall, and that uh, uh, that music and the rest of his work can be found at music.podshow.com. And the closing theme uh, was written by Jeff Wall, and his music can be found at magnitude.com. Both of those sites are great music sites. It's uh, DRM-free, podcast-safe music, and uh, they've just got a lot of great stuff, so please do check them out. The next episode, I think what we'll do is take a look at some Linux websites and some, you know, look at some Linux news and uh, just kind of get you sort of familiar with what's going on out there and give you some websites you can bookmark and check, you know, uh, in between episodes. And uh, we'll start taking a look at some of the uh, Linux distributions that are out there as well. So I uh, hope you do come back. hope you stay subscribed. And uh, uh, I'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.